Welcome to the Modern Mexico Podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Parrish. In today's episode of the podcast, we're talking about organized crime in the state of Michoacan, the heart of Mexico's avocado export industry. Overall, Mexico supplies around 80% of the avocados eaten in the U.S., and most of these avocados come from Michoacan. So there's a good chance if you eat an avocado in the U.S., you are consuming a product that comes from one of the most violent and complex states in Mexico. Michoacan, which is located on Mexico's Pacific coast, has a population that is only slightly larger than the U.S. state of Connecticut, but has recorded over 10,000 murders during the administration of Mexico's current president, Andres Manuel López Obrador. The day-to-day violence in Michoacan is alarming. On April 4th, 2023, criminal gunmen engaged in a prolonged shootout with police in Michoacan, killing two officers. Over the last few years, cartel gunmen in Michoacan have also employed bomber drones, landmines, and even IEDs. And the state police in Michoacan now use heavy-duty military-style armored trucks. So. Overall, Mexico is experiencing a record-breaking level of violence right now, but even within that context, Michoacan stands out because of the presence of armed civilian auto-defensa self-defense groups who man roadblocks and claim to defend various towns in the state. So it's usually never quite clear what relationship these civilian gunmen have with local organized crime groups. But... Michoacan also produces around three-quarters of the avocado grown in Mexico, and it's a crop that earned a record-breaking $3.1 billion in export revenue from U.S. buyers in 2022. So, although Michoacan has found success exporting avocados, in 2023 the state continues to struggle with a complicated mix of social, economic, and security problems. So. In order to discuss the current security dynamic in Michoacan, I reached out to Falco Ernst, a Mexico analyst at the International Crisis Group, an NGO. So welcome to the podcast, Falco. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is, what three words would you pick to describe the current security dynamic in Michoacan? So the three words I'd pick uh, that I see as most important to describe those dynamics um, are fragmented, diversified, and uh, political. And when I say fragmented, I refer to the overall trend of Mexican organized crime to be shattered into many pieces. So we started um, the war on drugs, to call it this way, in 2006 with a handful of uh, relatively coherent criminal organizations that then under state pressure, um, militarization of public policy and um, the idea to take out kingpins um, got uh, broken up into many, many pieces. So we've gone from uh, that handful of organizations into at least 
200 uh, non-stained criminal actors that are active in Mexico today. And um, that number has doubled uh, within the past decade. And one state where that's especially clear is Michoacan, where you used to have one coherent larger organization, the Knights Templar, that was called La Familia Michoacana before. And um, during the autodefensa uprising and um, state action uh, taken by um, the then federal government of uh, President Peña Nieto, um, you ended up with a number of at least 14 criminal groups that have carved out the territory and many smaller fiefdoms. And um, in terms of how that drives conflict, um, it's key to understand that uh, none of these groups has amassed um, sufficient power to steamroll the opposition. So you end up with perpetual fighting and a lot of internal borders that uh, heavily affect civilian populations, their freedom of movement and their freedom to bring their produce, for instance, and other goods to market. So it's had a deep uh, humanitarian effect and um, is prolonging uh, conflict in Mexico and uh, Michoacan because uh, not a single group has been able to impose itself and end conflict um, to produce a more stable model of criminal control, as it were. Um, I say diversified in reference to the um, still relatively new model of, of refinancing and making money of criminal groups and their allies in the private sector and the state, because uh, classically speaking, most power within organized crime in Mexico used to be concentrated in drugs trafficking, drugs production, and drugs trafficking on the international scale. And um, in the past uh, years, uh, you've seen this eminent trend for these groups to um, turn to a multi-commodity approach <clears throat> in the sense that the game now is to control territory, to uh, deeply penetrate into the economics, into different um, economic chains, into politics, and into populational control and to leverage that control um, to then extract rents from the most different uh, commodity chains. So that happens a lot through a kidnapping, through extortion, and also through de facto uh, monopolization of um, certain markets, including in agriculture. And essentially what this provides criminal groups with is uh, a very great flexibility to refinance by tapping into further unprotected uh, businesses that are um, licit in origin. So it makes um, the conflict as such um, and the groups that participate in it uh, much more stubborn and much more resilient against uh, law enforcement action, but also against shocks in particular markets because there's always something else to turn to and to um, extract uh, money from that they need to buy guns to finance um, and pay their personnel and to pay off politicians. And I say political because um, we have this tendency from the outside, especially, and also from Mexico City, looking at uh, high conflict regions such as Michoacan in Mexico um, to see these groups as something autonomous. But um, one of their key resources really comes from the ties to um, the state, to um, state institutions. They gain access through elections, for instance, by financing campaigns, by applying violence and applying other kinds of pressures, by being able to channel votes to this or that candidate that uh, will play game with you if you hold that power. And um, they um, get a, a number of key resources from state institutions um, above all 
um, the fact that uh, law enforcement and prosecutorial services will not act against you if you uh, strike the right kind of agreements. And that ultimately means that you're afforded with impunity and um, without impunity, you cannot survive as a criminal organization. So access to the state is absolutely central. And there's another aspect to um, these groups haven't been constituted as de facto political actors in the sense that, as I already mentioned, they hold great uh, power over populations and they regulate in many areas daily life. They take up positions um, of um, applying or withholding justice, solving everyday problems and really governing uh, populations in a way that constitutes them as de facto political actors, which again gives them great leverage towards the formal political system. Okay, very interesting. So you chose the words political, fragmented, and diversified to describe the current dynamic in Michoacan. And I think it's interesting that, you know, we know that 10,000 people have been murdered in in Michoacan during the presidency of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Um, but you didn't use the word war to describe what's happening on the ground. And I think it's interesting that you picked the word political. And I think rather than using the word war, maybe it's helpful to use the word warlord and think about the criminal actors as also being political actors who are you know, deeply engaged with politics and business and the state and not simply um, armed criminals who are either shooting at each other or shooting at the police or, or soldiers. And with that in mind, I'm wondering, is there any one big concept that you think that people really need to understand about the security dynamic in Michoacan? Yeah, especially when we talk about state crime ties is something key to explaining um, the current state of conflict in Michoacan and also other parts increasingly so in, in uh, Mexico and high conflict regions is uh, that uh, corruption per se as uh, a means of establishing contract between uh, rogue state actors and criminal actors has become dysfunctional. When I say corruption has become dysfunctional, I mean that corruption per se isn't anything new. There's a large and very long trajectory of the Mexican state engaging in nefarious ways with criminal groups. But um, you've had the phenomenon that um, from 2000, where you have political uh, variation at the highest level of the state and the presidency, you have a nominal democracy. Um, the state has lost its uh, central governing uh, power to regulate and discipline criminal actors because you have too many different competing opposing interests capturing parts of the state and acting um, out of uh, different interests that are not combined. So you lose the capacity to streamline informal governance, as it were, and that ultimately translates into leverage for criminal groups to access the state through different channels. But at the same time, you end up with a mosaic of uh, opposing, again, competing state criminal networks. Um, and ultimately, that means that um, state power as such has been hyper-fragmented. It doesn't have the capacity anymore to uh, discipline, to streamline, to uh, keep these guys at bay. And um, ultimately, that just uh, means that you don't have the capacity to apply any formal or informal policy um, consistently. And I think uh, one grand example of this is that under the Calderon administration, so under the administration of the former president who called out the war on drugs, 
said he was going all in with military force to get these guys um, out of their holes, to get them off the streets, to smoke them out. Um, that even then the whole uh, policy of militarization and going after kingpins was applied very incoherently because it ultimately resulted that um, the chief architect of the whole strategy, Garcia Luna, uh, was uh, colluded with the Sinaloa cartel, which in exchange for this didn't receive the, the wrath of the strategy while it was applied to other groups. And um, at the end of the day, this creates um, instability within this system and uh, for criminal groups, it's a huge problem because you invest into ties with um, the state. You need to have this access to the state in order to survive, to draw resources from it. But um, state actors at the same time promise all kinds of different things, candidates for uh, governorships, for instance, to opposing criminal groups. And then once in office, they can't deliver anymore. And then um, you as a criminal group, you still have to push for these contracts to be made good on. And um, instead of more peaceful means, uh, you escalate your language of negotiation to violence. And that is a huge uh, factor that has been driving conflict, that's driving instability and keeps this whole conflict um, in a perpetual state that is gradually worsening with criminal groups digging in deeper and deeper over time. Okay, very interesting. So I know I just saw something recently that the the World Justice Project ranks Mexico in the bottom fifth of the world's countries in terms of the strength of rule of law. So in terms of rule of law, they actually rank Mexico as worse than Sierra Leone or the Philippines. So I think it's an interesting lens for viewing the violence if we say that violence is a tool for corrupt negotiations, it can help us understand, um, you know, what's happening at the local level in different parts of Michoacan and in other parts of Mexico. And I know that you have spent a lot of time in Michoacan and you've visited, you know, some of the most remote parts of the state and talked to a lot of um, gunmen who work for different organized crime groups, talked to locals who are dealing with the violence and I think you have a pretty unique perspective to what's happening on the ground. And I'm, I'm wondering when you think about Michoacan, what grade would you give President Lopez Obrador for his security policies there? Right. Um, so I'd, I'd give him a, a, a D minus. Um, the, the problem is that um, there's a um, an inefficient uh, translation into policy um, of um, certain ambitions that uh, might exist um, at the level of the presidency right now. So I think one thing they have or he has recognized that uh, is that uh, past formulations that solely bet on force um, have backfired and have increased um, instability and violence in the country with uh, Mexican populations, um, civilian populations really bearing the brunt of this, this backfiring. And uh, this is something we're seeing across Latin America that you have an increasing number of, uh, well, political leaders that are not willing to carry those costs anymore of a model that has been chiefly exported by the United States. So they're rethinking their approaches to insecurity and how to protect populations. But the problem in Mexico is that um, even though you have a hyper-pragmatic approach um, by some state actors, including the military, to some of these criminal groups, is that um, 
this this will to better manage uh, violence, insecurity, organized criminal power, and also corruption instead of eradicating it, which is something that hasn't really worked over the past two decades, is uh, that um, they do not tackle the root causes um, that you would need to tackle in order to have coherent instruments for the implementation of any formal or informal policy in place, i.e. if you still have these uh, diversified and highly fragmented uh, ties between uh, criminal groups and um, state actors, um, ultimately any policy will be undermined and distorted, watered down in the process of implementation because you as a criminal group, and this is something I'm being told very clearly by my um, criminal uh, interview partners, as it were, um, some of those, um, well, leaders of, of the groups that populate the underworld, as it were, in Michoacan, are um, telling me that they have um, very good access and uh, get uh, favors from different fragments of the same state institutions. So um, one group will have access to one general or one lieutenant will get information from them, will get favors in uh, the sense of military operations being withheld um, against the group and being applied to other groups instead. But then you talk to the other group and they have similar analog deals with other um, personnel, with other uh, commanders of the same force. And this is something that comes out um, even more clearly uh, when you look at uh, state police forces, for instance, where different uh, fragments, different segments of the same institution are essentially pitted against each other because they collaborate with competing criminal interests. Um, this is something, for instance, that I've seen on the ground many times. Um, so, uh, I mean, I've built a, a conversation of, of trust, I would say, over time with some of those criminal leaders. And when I go to those areas, they will uh, let me tag along. Um, and in one situation particularly that led to me being uh, dragged along more than being able to tag along, to uh, the build up to an offensive they were planning and executing against an animal enemy group. And um, we did a stop on the way um, to the build up, the actual build up of sicarios, of troops on the ground. And we stopped by the uh, local uh, state police uh, commander where my contact from the criminal group was talking through the strategy of the day's offensive with the uh, commander and then both state police and cartel forces, if you want to call them that, I'm headed into battle together. So you have a very clear overlap between uh, these groups. But then again, um, their enemy groups also had deals with other fragments of state police. And um, the, the, to make a long story short, as long as you have these differential ties within state institutions to different criminal groups, that means that on the ground, uh, policy um, and operations will be watered down, will be distorted, and um, the president would have to fix that in order to uh, actually lower criminal uh, ambition and criminal infighting um, for good. So, and that is something that's not happening right now. The official stance is that uh, corruption doesn't exist anymore, especially not within the armed forces. Realities on the ground are very different from this. And as long as uh, we keep on uh, denying the problems that exist that we would have to fix um, to get violence down. Um, the reality is that um, criminal groups will uh, find access to the state and will be able to uh, survive through these uh, points of access. And um, that is simply something that Obrador hasn't tackled yet, um, i.e. 
um, I'm giving it a D minus uh, for that, not a complete fail because um, a rethinking is there, at least an ambition, but uh, the um, execution has been uh, poor at best so far. Okay, interesting. So I know that on a, on a recent episode of the podcast, security expert Vonda Felbat-Brown gave Lopez Obrador a failing grade for his security policies overall. And one of the things she said is that she views the National Guard as basically being very expensive mannequins who are posted uh, at checkpoints in different places in the country and do patrols, but don't do very much to investigate or dismantle organized crime groups. And it sounds like in some degree you might be willing to go even a step beyond that and say that it isn't just that uh, security forces in Mexico aren't doing enough to investigate organized crime. In many cases at the local level, they're really part of the, the problem. And in my book, I wrote a chapter about Michoacan's avocado sector. And I visited a town called Tancitro, which is the epicenter of Mexico's multi-billion dollar a year avocado export industry. And I remember this really surreal moment where I chatted with an avocado orchard owner in the quiet shade uh, underneath the canopy of trees on his property. And it was a real juxtaposition between the very hectic dynamic that uh, we saw in the streets outside. There were uh, gunmen in civilian clothes and t-shirts wearing flak jackets and carrying assault rifles who were manning security checkpoints that basically looked like medieval castles. Um, and there were you know, gunmen from a number of different groups. Some of them wore local police jackets, others were just wearing regular civilian clothes, and uh, it was always kind of unclear who the civilian gunmen were or what relationship they had with um, local organized crime groups. You know, why were they patrolling the streets all the time? Who was paying them to be there? Um, and the avocado orchard owner told me something very interesting. He said, the government doesn't rule here but it's under control, you can relax. And that really stuck with me, just this idea of the contrast between the order of the orchard, which was a meticulously run organization, and the chaos and sometimes scary security dynamic that was happening you know, a few hundred feet away on the streets outside of the orchard. Um, so, when I think about Michoacan, I think about that avocado grower and something that he said to me is that there's always rumors that a lot of drug money has been funneled into avocado orchards. And over the last few years, it's possible that organized crime groups have killed or intimidated some of the original owners in the area. And it's possible that organized crime groups are now operating avocado farms. Um, but he just seemed to dismiss it as a basic fact of life. And he had zero faith that Mexican police or prosecutors would investigate or try to clean up the sector. And I'm wondering, is this dynamic that I saw in the avocado sector 
similar to things that you've seen in other business sectors in Michoacan? Yeah, very much. I mean, it all uh, goes back to uh, the diversification of the business model and the way that criminal groups have come to uh, relate to territory in uh, Michoacan and also in other parts of uh, Mexico. So again, through the loss of a current um, state control model, um, they have been able to dig in deeper. And um, some of the criminal leaders I sit down with, um, other observers who have good insight into these questions um, on the ground, I'm essentially describe a model where over time uh, these groups have found it uh, easier and easier, especially now under the passiveness of the current administration uh, that's been accentuated, um, that um, they get to dig in deeper into local economies, into politics, and into populational control. And um, this is repeated in every sub-region um, of the state, essentially, and it, it only depends on what the, the greatest value chain the the most lush uh, commodity chain is but you will find a similar um, sort of, um, getting into uh, a different refinancing by tapping into listed commodity uh, chains and um, business um, activities um, across the state and also in many other states in mexico so um, if from the avocado growing region uh, which is a bit higher up because it needs the mixture between heat and uh, colder nights and um, higher rainfall you drop uh, from this avocado belt, as it's called, into the hot land where you have very dry conditions, which are ideal for citrus fruit production, for instance, um, also very export oriented, including um, uh, including um, uh, limes and uh, grapefruit, for instance. Um, we will find the same uh, model where criminal groups have either and including through force, taking over um, orchards um, or where there are uh, criminal actors that control access to market. So you can't, even if you're still autonomous as a producer, uh, export um, without uh, paying a criminal surcharge because um, you have to go through export channels and uh, packing plants or where you have a simple extortion model of uh, producers where they have to pay up for each kilo essentially um, that they produce and then again want to bring to market. Um, it's also been a trend for these uh, groups to, and especially the leaders, um, to channel their money into purchasing um, many times, again, by being able to back their offers through violence preferential rates, um, buying up orchards and really becoming a type of uh, multi-entrepreneurial um, um, strongman on the local level. So they run their own orchards and feed that directly into exports, for instance. And then um, closer to the coast, um, the same has essentially happened with natural resources and the mining industry. Um, closer to the border to uh, Jalisco, you have a lot of berry uh, production including blackberries and so on and so forth, also being um, sent a lot to the United States for consumption, and you will find um, different models. So it's really not about one commodity anymore. It's not just about avocados, even though avocados remain a very healthy uh, basis for income for these criminal interests, because you're talking about a $4 billion industry, but um, it repeats itself in every um, sub-region, and that is um, something that's not limited to Michoacan. But, um, for instance, if you go into other states like Veracruz, you will also find um, essentially what have become uh, blood pineapples. And it's, it's just a huge, huge list. Um, by now, the portfolio really includes um, dozens of items 
um, from licit um, economic activities and illicit economic activities. So I wanted to take a short break to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by Nomade Tostadores. Overall, Mexico is known for producing some of the best coffee in Latin America. Total, in 2022, Mexico exported over $600 million of raw coffee beans. One of the best local roasters in Mexico City is Nomade Tostadores. Residents and visitors can sample their high-end coffee at Café Blom in Colonia Juarez or Vara Funky in Colonia del Valle. Nomadi Coffee can also be purchased online and shipped worldwide. Check them out on Instagram. I think there, in discussions about Mexico, there's sometimes this bifurcation or differentiation between the success of Mexico's legal economy and what's happening in different export sectors and then the kind of scary chaos of what's happening up in the mountains when it comes to organized crime. But it sounds like in your research in Michoacan, you've seen that uh, there's kind of some blurred lines between organized crime and legal business activity in Mexico. And that kind of reminds me of something else that I, I saw in Michoacan. And I remember that I visited a avocado packing plant that was rumored to be, uh, or it wasn't rumored to be, it was owned by a powerful local family that was rumored to be involved in organized crime. And local people that I talked to were both very um, negative in their comments about the family and also a little bit scared, but they told me that the owner of the packing facility had gone into hiding and uh, had kind of disappeared from the town. No one had seen him, but another brother in the family had been killed by a hitman um, that basically people in the town were tired of him exploiting them or extorting them and had hired a hitman to come in and kill him. Um, but at the same time, there was another member of the family who continued to serve as a respected member of the local avocado growers association. So it was this kind of weird dynamic where there are a lot of very serious accusations about the family, but the business continues to operate and nothing had really changed. And I remember one of the kind of weird things that I saw is when I showed up in the morning to visit the facility. I saw one of the managers show up at work, you know, well-dressed with his hair gelled, carrying an assault rifle, like uh, as casually as someone might carry, uh, you know, an umbrella, like just in the chance of um, unforeseen circumstances, he would have an assault rifle with, with him. And he, you know, walked into his office and tucked it behind his desk. And, you know, I did a tour of the facility and, um, another one of the managers was showing me all of the crates of avocados and she could tell exactly, uh, which farm each, each batch of crates had come from. And there were inspectors from the U S department of agriculture who were there, who were monitoring the avocados. And if there was any instance of, um, some type of blight or dangerous insect being in a, 
in a crate of avocados, they could immediately identify which farm it came from and, you know, block that from being exported in order to protect, um, you know, the farm industry in the U.S. Um, so it seemed like there was some degree of control and regulation of the of the sector and the avocado packing facility was incredibly well managed. Um, but it was a little bit strange to walk around with this manager and see crates of avocados being loaded up onto trucks. And she was telling me that within 30 hours, these avocados would be in U.S. supermarkets. And she specifically referenced that they were sending avocados to Costco and Sam's Club. And it seemed to me to be a little bit strange that, you know, these major supermarket change in, in the U.S., um, you know, like Stop and Shop or Whole Foods, who are buying lots of avocados in in Mexico, don't have any obligation to ethically source the avocados that they're buying. And it made me wonder whether human rights due diligence could play a role in improving the dynamic in Michoacan. And I don't know if that's something that you've thought about, about companies being required to ethically source avocados in Mexico as being a potential solution, or if there is any other particular policy solution that you'd like to see that you think would improve the security dynamic in Michoacan. Yeah, very much. Um, so I think... Um, one of the problems we've been facing in Mexico is that, um, that the whole uh, situation just um, sort of lingers and gets gradually worse. And um, uh, people, policymakers um, and other stakeholders are just um, kind of grown frustrated and uh, many have essentially given up uh, because they don't see uh, levers anymore. And they don't see the actors that could bring about change where you have a, a will from politicians um, to change the paradigm and um, to do the right thing, right? So you have to get creative and thinking about new uh, levers that could bring about that change and uh, force uh, people on the ground to do the right thing, even though they wouldn't be inclined to do so uh, by, say, their ideological inclination or their um, preference for, well, a cleaner human rights record, for instance. Um, so um, consumer power, um, very much um, becomes part of, of um, our thoughts here at um, Crisis Group as well about how to change that dynamic. And uh, one of the, the problems is that so far um, the U.S. has been treating uh, security and trade uh, separately. I think those two things would have to be fused in order to make a dent in the situation on the ground. And in terms of um, how, for instance, um, the avocado sector could be gradually uh, grow well less violent and how consumption could, could become more ethical. I think um, that one way of thinking about this would be to go down the route of um, certification um, in the private sector in order to incentivize um, well importers from the US, uh, consumers, but also producers on the ground to um, try and uh, take the right measures and pressure local government above all um, to uh, provide better protection. And I think if you had a certification that would be sort of analog to what happened to um, the blood diamond certification where you wanted to get um, the financing of conflict out of the diamond trade, which um, happened with some success, not entire success, but some success at least. 
um, this would um, essentially not um, only allow consumers to be on the safe side, but also produce higher margins um, in the market. So you could create, um, well, a structure that would uh, pay higher for um, better and cleaner avocado um, and then incentivize everyone to follow suit because um, ultimately what um, the lack of change is about in Mexico is many times that elite economic interest hasn't been as affected. And here you could introduce sort of even a soft measure in order to force um, state actors and others to do the right thing on the ground. Because uh, one thing that um, even criminal actors are really afraid of is that um, they turn uh, overly powerful economic interests um, from the private sector against them. This is something I've been told a number of times very, very clearly by criminal leaders, including from Michoacan, that they, for instance, um, have taken to refraining from kidnapping overly powerful people because those have access to the state and can make state institutions in Mexico do uh, the right thing and um, send um, the power of the state the way of criminal groups. And you will have to think about how consumer power can translate into a moving elite interest in Mexico and then pressure state institutions into doing the right thing. Now, um, I think this is a conversation that needs to be had. But what I do not want to say, and there have been calls from Europe, for instance, to the fact that are calling for a boycott wholesale of um, this kind of affected uh, produce or other products that have been exported from Mexico to North America, other parts of North America and the European Union. But if you um, go um, down the route of a wholesale boycott, you ultimately make things worse because you pull the rug out from under a lot of um, hardworking families that make the living of these industries. Um, the organized crime infiltration of these industries and including avocado is not the, the whole picture, um, there is a lot of um, just, you know, clean, normal civilians making a living off of that. And if they were to lose their uh, livelihoods, it would make it even easier for criminal groups to uh, get a hold of them and suck them into, for instance, uh, organized crime membership, including of young people from local areas that then would have even less economic um, alternatives to uh, joining criminal groups. Okay, interesting. So. It, uh, I guess that is an important point is I don't think that it is helpful to advocate for a total ban on Mexican avocados, but particularly when it comes to avocados, which is a product that people see as a, you know, a health product, just something that's beneficial to eat, it's part of a positive lifestyle. Um, there should be some interest in the part of consumers and just making sure that whatever avocados they're eating have been ethically sourced and aren't, um, you know, aren't financing the conflict in Michoacan, which has killed over 10,000 people in the last few years. Um, overall, Falco, I just want to say, you know, super interesting to hear your perspective on all of this. And I just want to say, you know, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. That's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me on. I wanted to take a short break to remind listeners that Mexico is the world's number one beer exporter. Within Mexico, however, the beer industry is dominated by two international beer giants, the companies that produce Corona and Dos Equis. 
Over the last decade, however, a niche market for locally produced craft beers has emerged in Mexico. And one of the best brands of cerveza artesanal in Mexico is Minerva, which is produced in Guadalajara. Visitors and locals can sample Minerva's beer at the El Deposito chain of craft beer stores in Mexico City. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Mexico Podcast. If you like what you heard on the podcast today, check out my book, Searching for Modern Mexico, which is available on Amazon. The next episode of the Modern Mexico Podcast is coming soon. Until then, hasta luego, amigos.